become fiercely honest by praying prayers that we might not otherwise have a tendency to pray. And when you begin to learn the Psalms and pray the Psalms, something happens to you. So let me read one such example of a woman who began to make the Psalms a regular part of her life. This is what she had to say. The Psalms became part of my life in the mid-70s. During a time, I was struggling for physical health and with severe clinical depression. It was during this time that I first discovered Diedrich Bonhoeffer's work, and I took note of his stated practice of including a New Testament reading and a reading from the Psalms in his daily prayer practice. I began to do the same and found in the Psalms more empathy for the darkness I was experiencing than anywhere else I turned. A divorce after 26 years of marriage cast me adrift in a new way, adrift from social and church moorings for many years. The Psalms became an incredible treasure in the healing, growing, identifying, and ownership process I was experiencing. I came to be able to look behind my exterior mask of all that was right with the world and learn to pray from the pit. I've not always been quiet in my praying of the Psalms, often furious at God for the loneliness and brokenness. Yet it is impossible to be angry and frustrated with a God you do not believe is there or have a dynamic relationship with him. He knows my feelings, and the Psalms continue to affirm my acknowledgement of them to him. They affirm the depth and height of the emotional, physical, and spiritual experiences I have become free enough to own and experience for myself. And I have made clear to me The Psalms have made clear to me that God intends that as humans we are called to explore our humanness to the fullest. And never more than these 150 prayers in the middle of your Bible do we get to experience that. If you haven't yet picked up a Psalms prayer guide for the month of July and August, please feel free to do so as you leave. They're just there as you'll depart. So give your attention, if you would, to Kendall now as he comes and reads God's word. From Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you. And teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Kendall read the word Selah, it threw some of you off because you're not used to hearing somebody say Selah as they read the psalm. Listen, the word Selah, you know what it means? We have no idea. 
We don't know what it means. It's a musical term of some sort in Scripture, um, but scholars are all divided on what exactly it means. Listen, when you have Psalm 32 before you, one of the things that's important to realize is that Psalm 32 is a thanksgiving psalm. And there are two different ways to say thanks to someone. You can say thank you to your grandmother after she gives you a present by saying the words thank you. But you can also say thank you to your grandmother by writing her a note that tells her how incredibly gracious and special she is to you. One of them is very direct and one of them is very indirect. This psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving, though you never see the word thanks or thankfulness in the entirety of the psalm. It's called a penitential psalm. It's a subcategory of a thankfulness psalm. It's a psalm that helps us be thankful because of something very precious that's available to you and to everyone here within my hearing, that you can be forgiven of your sins. This psalm has cascading lines of light and heat. Jonathan Edwards once said that every good sermon you hear, every reading of scripture has both light and heat. He drew that out of Psalm 32. Because in this psalm, you see cascading lines of truth about who God is, wisdom for you. That's what the word mascul means, a mascul of David, the wisdom of David. It's a musical term saying this is a wisdom psalm. Mascul is a song or a lyrical or a liturgical um, uh, word that just means wisdom or enlightened It means that this psalm is to be sung in a particular way, but because when Hebrew is written, we don't have the meter to Hebrew, we don't exactly know what that meant, how it was to be sung. But you see that God gives us wisdom. Blessed is the man whose trespasses are are forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's light for our minds. And then later on, after verses 1 and 2, you read down through verses 3 to 5, you see the heat. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, and my strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. That's the heat. Then you go on and you see that God gives you more light. He sheds more light on it. I acknowledge my sin to you. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Verse 6, you see light again. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That's wisdom. Pray to God before he hardens your heart. When you're convicted, run to him. He's available. And then... You see in verses 8 and 9, more heat. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Light is wisdom, doctrine for practical living. Heat is the white hot experience of God's intimate presence with you. Light is wisdom for doctrinal living, practical living. Heat is the experience of God's very presence. Have you ever experienced the heat of God's presence in your life? You know when he's with you and he's whispering over you that he loves you so much? Some of you are all light. And there's not very much heat in you. Which that makes you really good at Jeopardy categories that are about the Bible. And it makes you really good at talking about Reformed theology and Arminius and Calvin and all these theological terms that you like to use to just... Make people feel stupid. It's a great thing if you want to be an arrogant person to have all light and no heat. Some of you come to church plants because you've listened to R.C. Sproul for many years and you love R.C. Sproul and you know, and he is a dear brother 
in our denomination that we cherish and we love. But listen, if you don't enter into community and you don't experience the transforming presence of his very presence with you, then all that you learn on podcasts about theology, it just makes you very arrogant and hard to be around. And on the other hand, if you have all heat and no light, what does that make you do? It makes you impulsive. It makes you get all spiritually lathered up for some great experience and then you end up petering out because you have no light for the direction or the vision ahead. Light and heat must go together. And thankfully they do in this psalm. So let's look at this psalm together for a few moments and let's think about degrees of light and heat. First, this psalm is a psalm that helps you ask the question, who is truly happy? That's verses 1 to 5. How do you become happy? Who is happy? How do you get happy? How do you get happy is verses 6 through 11. First, the first light, verse 1. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. If you want to have light, If you want to understand the gospel, the first thing you have to do is to believe that verse. Blessed, happy is the one who knows his sin is forgiven. You know what you need to do in order to know your sin is forgiven? You have to admit something, don't you? You have to admit that you're a sinner. And if you've ever gone through a new members class, you know that there's two ways to be a sinner. You can be a sinner by doing good works, by using the church as a crutch, by being a good person, being good to avoid Jesus. You can also be a sinner by just being a hellion and a rebel, by running from God as fast and as furiously as you can. Both ways, both ways, both people often have a hard time admitting that they're broken and that they're sinners. It says, blessed is the man who is forgiven. We love that part of this psalm. We love that verse. If, if, um, let, let, let's imagine that you... Um, that you, you, uh, you had a bank overdraft charge. Like you overdrafted your bank account. What's the charge for that these days? Yeah, a lot of you knew that way too fast. <laughs> like let's say you had a bank overdraft charge and you go into the bank and you go to the teller and you say, listen, I've been a good client here for a long time. And they say, oh, it's okay, Mr. Altman. You know, we'll waive, we'll waive your overdraft fee. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I've been forgiven of my overdraft charge. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that grace? Yes, I've been given something that I didn't deserve, right? Is that good news? Yes, I've been given something I did not deserve. You've waived my overdraft charge. Thank you so much. What's the problem? The problem is I leave the bank just as poor as I went in. And for a lot of you, that's how you think about the gospel. You've been forgiven of your sins. God has delivered you, and now now all I need to do is work to get God to love me. And if I can just be a good enough person, listen to enough podcasts, go to enough conferences, be a part of enough church plants, then God will look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But that's not what the verse says. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let's imagine that you go into that same bank, and the teller says, congratulations, Mr. Altman, because you're not keeping up with your checking account, you bounced a check. We forgive your overdraft fee. Follow me, please. 
And he or she takes me to the corner office and I meet the president of the bank. And the president of the bank says, come with me, Blake. And he takes me downstairs, down these deep, dark stairs into the bottom of the bank. Pulls out this big stainless steel ring of keys. And he hands me the biggest one. And he says, that's what we call the bank vault. There's a lot of money in there. We're not just going to forgive you of your overdraft charge. We're going to give you the key to the vault. And everything in this bank is now yours. That's what it means in Psalm 32 too, when it says your sin is covered. It's not just that your sin is taken away. Many of you have believed for years that that's what the gospel is. But it's also the more important truth that you have been covered with a righteousness that is not your own. You have been given the keys, as it were, to the bank vault. Everything that is the Father's is yours. You have access. You have his favor. You have his love and his joy. When you read the Psalms, they are often written in parallel lines. There's different kinds of parallelism in the Psalms. There's antithetical parallelism. There is synonymous parallelism. But when you read a psalm like this, it says, blessed is a man whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is a man whose sins are covered. It's a synonymous, it's an example of synonymous parallelism in, in the psalms. But synonymous parallelism, like, I'm, I'm not geeking out, just stay with me, does not mean that these are identical things. What it means is line A is true. How much more line B? Your sins are forgiven. How much more you are covered in his righteousness? So the first light, as it were, that you need to recognize is that you need to admit that you're a sinner and that Jesus covers you with his righteousness if you'll only believe in his finished work. The second light, it says, verse 2, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now this doesn't mean that there's perfection. It just means that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. It just means that you are growing more and more into a person who's honest about who he really is. That you're taking off the masks and you're allowing your chief identity to be rooted in an identity that's been given to you. Not in one that you manufacture through your wealth or through your associations or through your social class. If the first light means you have to recognize that you are a sinner, then the second light, as it were, means you've got to fiercely pursue self-awareness to grow in a sense of self-awareness. And that's what the psalm allows you to do. David said in Psalm 78, Help me to shepherd them with integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands. Let what I think and what I actually say be the same thing. Take away my duplicitousness and every one of us, myself included, struggle with that. Take away my deceit. Let me be a person of no deceit. Don Draper, the great theologian and madman, said, advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? It's a smell of a new car. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you're doing is okay. You are okay. And with the Psalms, help us recognize that it's okay to not be okay. And to know that we need to be covered in a righteousness that is not our own. Admit that we're a sinner. Be fierce about our own sense of self-awareness. And in the third light, 
the third light comes in recognizing that you have an alien righteousness that has been given to you. In Romans chapter 4, the, the uh, passage that um, Brad read for us earlier, Abraham is credited a righteousness that is not his own, not because of his works, but because of his faith. We are a people who want to be good people, not because we're trying to earn his favor or merit, but in light of what he has done to cover us up, to shelter us in the shadow of his almighty wings, to remind us that he loves us and that he cares for us. Mike used illustration in Luke chapter 18 about the, um, he didn't say it, but it's a parable of the tax collector and the thief or the sinner. And of course, that. I mean, the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, of course, prays, Lord, thank you, I'm not like the sinners around here. And the sinner, the thief, says, Lord, I am broken about my sin. And isn't it interesting that the one who admitted his brokenness was closer to Jesus than the one who was trying to fiercely justify himself? Verse 3 says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You know, he's not becoming a zombie. What it means is that he is self-just, he's always justifying his sin through my groaning all day long. He's struggling and fighting like a wild animal in a cage to justify his behavior constantly before God. And for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Just like in Luke 18, the hand of the conviction of the Holy Spirit was heavier and heavier upon that Pharisee. But instead of repenting, Recognizing that he was broken, the Pharisee said, ah, I can do this. I can fight through it. And his heart got harder and harder and harder. Until what? Until David turns in verse 5 to a prayer. Notice he's speaking to us in verses 1 to 4. And then in verse 5, he turns to a prayer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will tra- uh, confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, that is the good news. That you can be forgiven, not only forgiven, but you're handed the keys to the vault. You can be given everything that Christ's, is Christ's is also yours. Augustine preached a sermon on this psalm in um, the year 412. And Augustine, many years ago, said this. He says, let God cover your wounds. Don't cover them yourself. If you cover them up out of embarrassment, the doctor will not heal you. You ever gone to a doctor's appointment and been afraid to tell the doctor what was really wrong? Allow the physician to cover and cure them, Augustine said, because he covers them with a dressing. Under the physician's dressing, the wound heals. Under the patient's covering, it's merely hidden. And anyway, by the way, Augustine says, from whom are you trying to hide? From the one who knows everything about you anyway? a good question verse 6 says therefore anyone who is if anyone is godly let him offer prayer to you at a time when god may be found god's not playing hide and seek what that verse means is that in the season of conviction when the holy spirit is helping you struggle with your sin that's the time to run to your savior in repentance not to delay it lest your heart become hardened but to respond quickly Isaiah 55, 5 says, Call on the Lord while he is near, while he may yet be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him, because God is a hiding place for him. That is, God is a refuge for you. 
You preserve me from trouble. God is your protector. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God is for you an encourager. And then God breaks into the scene in the psalm. And God says to David, okay, listen, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule without light, without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. What God is saying is, listen, I'm not some taskmaster that's demanding that you obey me. What I'm saying to you is I'm trying to help you understand David. And through David, this is written in plural. I will instruct you. It's plural in Hebrew. He's writing it to every single one of us. I want you to know that if you're in Christ, like sin doesn't separate us anymore. A lot of us, people will come to me sometimes that are dealing with an issue and they'll feel like God is on the other side of their sin, like they're trying to like get God to love them by trying to like confess all their messiness and yuckiness as though they can't receive God's love because their sin is making that impenetrable. That's not the gospel. If you are in Jesus Christ, friends, Jesus is on this side of your sin. And he is helping you face your sin and struggle over it. He's on your side. And it's a world of difference to know that your Savior loves you and he cares for you so much. My sister-in-law and my niece and nephew are here, and they told me a story about going to my parents' house this week, and they stayed at their house, and my mother um, told them the alarm code, but she said, I can't remember if it's like the asterisk or enter after you punch the alarm code in. And so they punch the code in, and then the alarm goes off, right? And they're like freaking out because the cops are coming, and they're at their, you know, Christy's at her in-law's house, and what do we do here? And Parker, my nephew, goes, hey, listen. Mom, it's okay. Like, when the cops get here, we'll just show them all of our faces in the house. <laughs> and that's exactly like the gospel. I mean, you think that you have to, like, earn your way into heaven through knowing some alarm code or having the catechism memorized? But in the house, Jesus has got your pictures everywhere because he loves you. And he's there for you. And so some of you are so fearful of God loving you. You haven't done enough good stuff. Please do not be like the the Pharisee be rather like the tax collector who recognized that it's the mercy and the grace of the gospel that allows us to have communion with him because it is his love that invites us in and in his house he dotes over us and he sings over us he delights over us he's got your picture and a thousand frames to show off to all the angels That's why he says down in verse 10 and down in verse 11, many are the sorrows of the wicked, those who try to work their way to heaven or who ignore the gospel altogether. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. God is constantly reminding you that he loves you. He cares for you and he's with you. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous and shout for joy, all of you upright in heart. When I was, um, many years ago, when, when I was in high school, there was a really overused, way overused illustration that they, the pastors would do in my denomination back then to help young men and women learn to wait, for, um, wait to have sex until marriage. It was a big part of the True Love Waits movement, and some of you may have experienced this. And so what they would encourage youth ministers to do is to take a rose 
You heard about this illustration? And they would take the rose, and they would say, take this rose and pass it down the aisle. Smell it, touch it, feel it. And so they'd pass these ro- this rose down the aisle, and it'd be a room full of 100 kids or so, and all the kids would smell it and touch it, and petals would fall off, and stems would break. And so by the time that it got to the very back, the youth minister would say, hey, bring me that rose, bring me that rose. And so some, you know, embarrassed eight, you know, eighth grader with lots of acne would walk up with braces and go here, and he'd take it, and he would say, now who wants this rose? Who wants this rose? It's been touched, and it's dirty, and the petals are broken. Who, do you want this? Is this loving? It was a horrible illustration. Because you know what somebody should have done? Some little punk-nosed seventh grader should have stood up in the back row and through his braces and his acne should have gone, Jesus wants the rose, man! He wants the rose because he loves you. It doesn't matter how tattered and banged up and broken you are. Your Savior is for you. He wants the rose. He's got pictures with your faces all over his house because he loves you. If you believe in his finished work for you, if you don't, the game's off. It's all on you. But children, some of you believe Jesus and and what he did for you, and we are so thankful that you do. And some of you, today is the day that you need to believe the gospel. And I hope that you will. Because in this psalm, Psalm 32, it's not just a psalm of thanksgiving for how much God has forgiven you, but it is also perhaps the most um, concise, systematic theology that's ever been written. Verses 1 and 2 is all about the view of God, a God who is able to forgive you, who is not far away but comes near to you. Verses 3 and 4 are all about man whose bones waste away through his groaning all day long on his own without salvation. Verses 6 through 9 are all about the doctrine of the Christian life. Call upon the Lord when he is able to be found. Walk in repentance all of your life, not just to get into the kingdom, but to exist and live and enjoy the kingdom. In verses 10 and 11 become the doctrine of last things. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So friends, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, so you upright in heart, because Jesus makes you upright in heart. And come to grips with honest confession that you need Jesus yet again this morning. And let him sing over you his love for you, because he cherishes you if you will believe. Do you? Light and heat. Knowledge of what God is teaching us through his word, but the heat of conviction, knowing that the presence of a father who loves you, the father who loves you is with you and came to you in love in the person of Jesus Christ and wants to change you by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will take this psalm of thankfulness, this masculine of David, And you will help us to recognize that the best news in all the world is not that we need to be good people in order for you to love us, but it's that in light of your love for us, we can stop striving for our own salvation through our self-saving strategies of life. And we can rest in your finished work. Would you help us to be a church that's fiercely honest about our sin And in so doing, Father, help us to be people who are former tax collectors that have now been able to admit that they are forgiven and that they are free. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.